0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name
1: is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back for part two of our two-part exploration of the world of Skugs.
0: That's right. Squirrels. Squirrels. If you did not listen to our last episode, our most recent episode about squirrels, Go back and listen to it because it will it will provide some necessary horrific revelations about the squirrel that you really need going into this episode.
1: And we should warn at the beginning that uh, <laughs> if you didn't listen to the last episode and you want to listen to this one anyway, you should be forewarned. This is going to be one of the most gruesome – Things we've ever explored on the show, I think, yeah, somehow, squirrels. I would
0: say that the, the, the last episode, which largely dealt with the fact that squirrels eat meat and do uh, actually stalk prey, uh, like that's an episode I would listen to with my six-year-old son and, and I wouldn't have any problem with it. I've talked about the topics uh, on that episode with him. This episode, I would probably not listen to with my six-year-old son.
1: Yeah, I didn't think it would roll out this way, but uh, but our exploration of squirrels is one of the most uh, inappropriate for children of all things we've ever we've ever explored here.
0: Yes, but we're walking in deep truth uh, tonight, children. So uh, so stick with us as we explore more uh, horrific facts about squirrel behavior. So again, last episode we talked about squirrels eating meat, squirrels stalking their prey, squirrels messing around with snakes, uh, squirrels and their relationship with uh, Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> This time –
1: now, in the last episode, we talked about uh, certain myths about Benjamin Franklin and the reality of Benjamin Franklin having a pet squirrel named Mungo who he Mm -hmm. wrote an elegy for when it was killed by a dog. Um, This time, I want to start off with another possible myth, possible fact that, that dwells in that hazy middle world of rumor. I want to know, Robert, if you've ever heard the same rumor I have. It's a horrifying rumor. It's one I've heard for years, and it's about the competition between squirrels. And the rumor goes something like this. When two adult male squirrels come into conflict over food, over territory, over mating or whatever, the two squirrels fight with a horrible aim, and that aim is to castrate the other by biting off
0: its squirrel testicles i had never heard of this before. I would say the closest thing i 'd heard was uh you know some details about uh, competition between chimpanzees, yeah but, biting biting off well, I just know that genital attacks um, have 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 been reported among chimpanzees, mm-hmm. uh, but i don 't know with what degree of frequency, but it 's the kind of thing where I heard about it in relation to chimpanzees, and now it makes me look at chimpanzees a a little uh well, there's a lot with chimpanzees to be, uh, you know, a little concerned about, but uh, but I'd never heard about this with squirrels. Well, I, I'd heard about this for years. I don't
1: remember where I heard it first. It might have been from some old, some good old Tennessee woodsman somewhere. Oh, who,
0: who spoke wisdom of the forest into my ears. But well, this uh, is important for us to remind all of our listeners: is that Joe and I both. Uh, grew up with uh, with with uh, with access to the Tennessee woodlands yes uh so there is a lot of uh, i'm rather surprised that i didn't hear this story from uh from from people uh, who wandered out of the out of the Tennessee uh, forests with with tales of the skug.
1: Well, if you want to hear about the hor- the horrors of skug castration from the lips of the the true speakers, you should go to YouTube because there will be many a video of some bearded hunter standing there in camo <laughs> talking into his phone in the middle of the forest saying, "Here's what happens when these here squirrels bite off each other's nuts." <laughs> But it turns out there are many variations on this base rumor. So one is that you got one squirrel species that supplants another in an area by castrating all the males of the other squirrel species. Sometimes this version goes you got gray squirrels doing it to red squirrels. Sometimes they say it's red squirrels doing it to gray squirrels. Sometimes the fox squirrel is thrown in there somewhere. And so what we want to look at is – Is there any truth to this? Is it true or is this just a horrible woodsman myth?
0: My uh, guess, of course, would be that it is a myth because it just doesn't sound like behavior one finds in animals, uh, especially against another species.
1: You know, it is a certainly strange targeted behavior. Yeah. Uh,
0: one thing that I want to because because you don't have to castrate another species to drive it off. We see plenty of examples of one one species driving off another from resources, competing for the same resources, or of course, uh, two members of the same species competing for resources or mates. Mm-hmm. But. You can drive you, they will drive each other off through uh, through fighting through displays much but more conventional means yeah usually genital mutilation doesn 't come up yeah it doesn 't seem like a necessary step,
1: but then again we, we, we'll we'll come back to this we 'll okay. weigh the pros and cons later on so one of the best things about this myth is that it doesn 't just come from the woodsman in camo talking into his phone by a forest stream. There's a rather crazy back and forth about this in several volumes of the Journal of the American Medical Association in JAMA from more than a century ago. So in the year 1898, for some reason, JAMA got a little bit obsessed with rampant squirrel castration. (laughs) So it started when the American surgeon Edmund Andrews wrote an article for the journal in 1898 about eunuchs and about the physiological effects of castration. And in this article – Andrews puts together sort of a roundup of what he knew about the natural effects of castration in many different animals. And one of those animals was the squirrel. And he writes, quote, Naturalists state that the black or gray male squirrels in fighting seek to castrate each other with their teeth so that many of those taken by hunters are thus mutilated. As they do it only in adult life, it does not materially change their general development. Because he was talking about this in the context of, well, what happens if a young animal is castrated? How does that change the way it develops into an adult?
0: Okay. So the the, the idea here is that it has – yeah, it's reached maturity.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Andrews does not say who these naturalists are. It makes me wonder, especially given the time, is this, is this real empirical data or is he just repeating the 1898 version of an urban
0: legend or maybe a rural legend? Yeah, just again, somebody wandering out of the woods saying, yep, squirrels in there, they're uh, biting each other's nuts and they're uh, they are, they are biting the necks of deer. It's good
1: that you called to mind. in the last episode, mm-hmm. we talked about some rumors about squirrel attacks that seemed very unlikely to be true about like in Borneo hunters talking about squirrels taking down deer and killing them. It seems hard to believe. yes. But so this first mention is just this one-off in in Andrew's article about eunuchs in general. And Andrews comes back to this in another volume of (laughs) JAMA with an article called Do Adult Squirrels Castrate Each Other? So Andrews writes in this article – remember we asked who that naturalist was or the naturalist were that he got his information from. He says he got the information about squirrels from, quote, a distinguished naturalist, but he still doesn't say who it is. This is a good, good lesson. Cite your sources yes. when possible, folks. Apparently, he got a contradictory response to this claim from a doctor named Dr. A.S. Allen of Mercy Hospital, Chicago. And Allen claims, first of all, about a third of wild squirrels captured by hunters are found to be castrated. I assume he means one third of male squirrels, but it doesn't say. I, I hate to be this lowbrow, but I'm I'm wondering if mistaking dead female squirrels for dead male squirrels could be causing some confusion among some hunters here. Perhaps, perhaps. Allen says he thinks that this castration is not done in fighting between adult males, as uh, Andrews did in his original article. He writes, quote, He says that a number of gray squirrels lived protected in these trees above his former residence. A female raised a litter of young in a tree close to the house. One day when the young were about one quarter grown, he observed the male trying repeatedly to enter the nest, but the female, which in that species is the largest of the two, fought him off and drove him away. This repeated several times and the male finally desisted. Sometime later, the female went away, apparently to gather food. Before she returned, the male reappeared, entered the nest, and created a great disturbance there so that the doctor climbed the tree and examined the young. He found four young quarter-grown males and one or two females. Three of the young males had been freshly castrated, the old male squirrel having bitten their scrotum and testes cleanly and smoothly off with his sharp incisors."
0: Okay, that's terrifying. Continue. That
1: that is gruesome. Mm -hmm. So, Alan claims that uh, he's had a career of squirrel hunting and he has found castrated adult males, but never freshly castrated adult males. And so, Andrews considers that it would be difficult for an adult male squirrel to hold another adult male still enough to bite off his testicles, but that this might be easier if the victim is a juvenile. Thus, he seems to think that Dr. Allen's story is probably a better explanation for why hunters report finding so many castrated squirrels. On the other hand, he thinks this is very weird in light of natural selection since it, quote, would hardly tend to benefit or perpetuate the species, Uh, Not to be condescending, but this indicates to me a kind of poor understanding of the level at which natural selection acts. Like members of a species are constantly doing things that do not benefit other members of that same species –
0: Right there is a, there is a great deal of selfishness. Again, we we talk about uh, you know males that are competing with each other for mates, or just uh, members of the species in general that are competing with other members of the species for resources. Right,
1: but that is not at all, I think, a uh, a good argument that this is really going on. I'm not sure exactly how to explain what Allen claims he observed in this nest, if assuming the story is true. But there are a few other reports. So uh, in uh, Spratling's uh, follow up again in the Journal of the American Medical Association, quote, how squirrels become eunuchs. This is another volume of JAMA and there is just a flurry of letters about squirrel castration. The, the, this really seemed to get the turn of the century physician engines revving. Like they were like, oh, I've got a squirrel castration story and they wrote in – One is from Dr. William Spratling of New York. And Spratling writes that he spent a lot of years squirrel hunting in eastern Alabama with an experienced squirrel hunter in his 60s. And one day he shot a young male squirrel to discover it had a fresh castration wound. His companion said it must have been done by an older male and that he had often found young male squirrels like that sometimes still in the nest. Spratling asked him why the older males did it. His companion replied that Spratling should ask the squirrels. Okay, You have to kind of wonder if he just shot the squirrel. Perhaps it could have been injured in the shooting, but who knows?
0: And of course, there are a number of different ways a squirrel could be injured. You know, let's – let's not limit the ways that a squirrel can uh, could lose its scrotum to mere um, you know uh, uh, you know hunting practices or the the the, the teeth of a, of a rival male sure
1: here's another one this one's really choice so this is from dr eh smith of santa clara california first i should note this guy his whole writing style and everything he sounds a little off So Smith writes that he observed plenty of squirrels in southwestern Michigan and he claims that the adult males do indeed fight in order to castrate, looking for opportunities to dive beneath one another and bite off the rival scrotum. He says this is primarily the red squirrels that do this and they do it to other kinds of squirrels for for the red squirrel, quote, is the hardest fighter of them all. And Smith says he tested this out by putting a red squirrel and a ferret in a box with each other, quote, expecting, of course, that the ferret would make short work of the squirrel. Instead, he said that the squirrel went right for the ferret's testicles and it was only by Smith intervening to protect the ferret with a stick that he avoided the doom chomp of the red squirrel. And I just wonder, like, what is worse if the guy made this up or if he's telling the truth? Yeah,
0: I'm, I do not really like this experiment that he uh, claims to have performed. That is not a good experiment. Yeah. That is not rigorous
1: and it's <laughs> It's also not nice. I'm more comforted by the fact that this guy – maybe this was just some 14-year-old writing to JAMA making up a fake identity in a story. One last letter from a Dr. Samuel J. Ford of Elliott City, Maryland, and Fort writes that he'd been hunting squirrels for years and has never noticed any castrated squirrels, though he admits he hasn't been on the lookout for this in particular. And he doubts that the biting off procedure could really be done cleanly in a way that the victim usually survives, given the shape of squirrel incisors. Like if you – Think about picturing them. They're more, you know, they are kind of chompy,
0: but they're narrow. Yeah, the, the survivability of the wound is something that I, my mind keeps turning to because we're talking about a pretty grievous injury. Yeah, but one for for enough males to survive, and then you know, so that hunters could comment on them, they would need to not die of either blood loss or uh, or, or secondary infection. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's
1: a very good point. And also think about this again. We we mentioned this earlier, but why would there actually be any incentive for an older male to do this? Why not just kill the rivals? Like right. if you're actually fighting and there's some kind of serious competition, why not just injure or kill? Why this very specific targeted type of injury that's so salacious and the kind of thing that a hunter might repeat in, in rumor to another? But Ford gives a couple of rival explanations uh, for the discovery of neutered male squirrels. He says, quote, could it not be congenital absence of the organs or failure of the organs to descend into the scrotum. I think Forts may be on to something there and we mm-hmm. can come back to that later on when we discuss possible explanations for these stories. But he also says, quote, the theory has been advanced by many hunters I have met that during the absence of the mother squirrel, the young utilized the male appendages as teats. And in their and in their kind effort to produce something that is not there, cause in time an atrophy of the organs. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if he's, is he making a joke there. I can't. Maybe I'm not reading
0: through the writing style. Yeah, or he has been. Uh, or if he's been the victim of a hoax uh, on this yeah. one, or somebody else's joke. I mean one thing that, that I, I keep thinking too with each of these doctors is that, yes, these appear to be medical doctors. But assuming they, they're real identities. Assuming they're yeah. real. But then also the, the, just because they're medical doctors do not mean that they are – that they're not biologists right. with uh, any expertise in observing uh, squirrel behavior. This seems very – or it smacks very much of amateur uh, yes. biology. Yes. They're, Even they're, from someone who, who should – by all rights, you know, be familiar with the scientific method to to a, a significant extent.
1: These are people who practice human medicine and right. human medicine in the 1890s. Yes, these are this not is true. not squirrel experts. They're not zoologists. They're not animal mm-hmm. behaviorists. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, though, on the other hand, we do have to deal with. Okay, well, at least people are making these reports. What do these reports mean? They could certainly be mistaken. But we've got plenty of reports of people who claim to have one, heard stories about squirrel castration from people who deal with a lot of squirrels, seen lots of examples of castrated squirrels, both young and old, and a few kinds of dubious-seeming claims of witnessing castration from adult squirrel fights. So despite the claims of people to have witnessed it themselves, this really does have all the hallmarks of an urban legend to me. I I believe people have found squirrels missing their genitals, but I'm not sure I buy the causes people have proposed. And I keep coming back to this idea, why this one particular gruesome kind of attack? Why not just a general fighting attack and attempt to injure or kill the other squirrel?
0: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back – We will look for more answers concerning this myth. All right. We're back. Okay, So I found a book by former
1: National Wildlife Federation executive, Warner Shedd, called Owls Aren't Wise and Bats Aren't Blind, a Naturalist Debunks Our Favorite Fallacies About Wildlife, which addresses a version of this claim about squirrel castration. So first of all, Shedd is writing about this in the context of a chapter on squirrel myths, specifically the myth that red squirrels drive out gray squirrels from any area they inhabit. And Shedd writes that while it isn't necessarily true that red squirrels will drive gray squirrels out of a forest, it is true that red squirrels tend to be very territorial. And if any animal like a gray squirrel gets too close to the red squirrel's hidden cache of nuts, the red squirrel will sometimes get aggressive and try to chase the gray squirrel off. And Shed says that this territorial chasing tendency might be somehow linked to the version of the castration claim that says red squirrels castrate gray squirrels, which he claims is simply the result of, quote, an overheated imagination or, quote, a deliberate tall tale. And he argues that it makes no sense for a squirrel to bite another squirrel's testicles off. Merely consider the facts. The gray squirrel generally weighs from two to three times as much as the little red even what are normally the most peaceable of animals will fight savagely if necessary to protect themselves. Nor could a red squirrel with its little teeth neatly snip off the testicles of the gray with one or two bites. The notion that the much bigger gray would allow its testicles to be gnawed off by this little relative is preposterous. Long before that happened, the gray would make squirrel hash out of the offending
0: red. And that has an exclamation point on it, by the way. That is like, so he's really... He's the really offending red. <laughs> he's really driving it home.
1: <laughs> he also adds that if in general reds had a successful strategy of sterilizing greys, greys would tend to disappear in areas where reds existed and he says this is not the case. So it sheds judgment. Uh, that, that's his judgment. But if he's correct and squirrels do not castrate each other, what should we make of all these reports in JAMA and elsewhere of people finding squirrels with castration wounds all over the place? Now, of course, it's possible that some of these could be lies or hoaxes. And I think with some of the – even a couple of those letters into JAMA, you, you kind of have to wonder. I mean these these supposedly are doctors writing in. But I don't know. That Smith
0: guy – Well, we've discussed time and time again that even very educated individuals can either be the perpetrators of hoax, hoaxes or the victims of hoaxes. Yeah. And then also there's that interesting – uh, relationship between uh, the the, uh, the the what the hoaxer and the hoaxy. Mm-hmm. Um Carl Sagan talks about this in uh, the Demon Haunted World and points out that it's like a magic trick. A magic trick is a, is it a, is, a, is a something that exists because of a silent pact between the magician and the audience. Yeah, people don't want to admit they've been tricked. Yeah.
1: If they've been tricked even momentarily, they, they kind of don't want to admit that they fell for it and will fight to defend the reality of the illusion. But then again, I don't think I would explain all of these cases in terms of hoaxes, deliberate hoaxes or tricks. I think in a lot of cases, you're probably going to be dealing with people who were mistaken about what they saw or who were— we're interpreting, misinterpreting something, right? So that brings us to the question of what else could cause a squirrel to appear incorrectly to have suffered this type of injury or attack. Now, there's one hypothesis that's pretty far out there. It's not exactly a perfect fit, but it is kind of worth a look and this is an explanation put forward by Ernest Thompson Seton who was an early influence on the formation and mythology of the Boy Scouts of America huh. uh, Seton noted that there is a species of parasitic botfly that is an obligate of tree squirrels and tends to lay eggs in the squirrel's groin and these eggs hatch and the larva erupt from the skin and it's gross but the squirrel can usually survive it it doesn't really benefit the fly to kill its host and if this Larva eruption were to happen in the groin, as it apparently sometimes does, hunters seeing wounds of this kind might think that the squirrels had had their groins violently attacked. And this botfly does exist. It's called Couterebra emasculator, or the tree squirrel botfly. And botflies on their own are, are a fascinating subject. I, we, we, we could return to them endlessly.
0: Oh, yes. The bot fly, also known as the heel fly, the gad fly, or my favorite, especially as it relates to squirrels, is the warble fly.
1: Now, why is that your favorite as it relates to
0: squirrels? Because um, you will sometimes see what is often described as a lumpy squirrel. If you spend as much time uh, looking at squirrels as we have, and certainly uh, in, in any kind of like rural southern uh, uh, environment, mm-hmm. then I, I bet you've either seen or heard of a warble, squ- warbled squirrel, a lumpy squirrel. It. I remember seeing one when I was young and found it found it rather grotesque. Why is that squirrel lumpy? What is going on with that squirrel? Mm-hmm. And you're saying a
1: warble fly is a good explanation.
0: Oh yeah, I mean it is—it's it's the explanation. Um, so, <laughs> bot, again there are a lot of botflies. There are like something like 150 species worldwide, and most of their larvae are obligate parasites of mammals. Their maggots grow in the flesh, usually the skin of the animals, sometimes in the gut. South America's human botfly, or uh, Dermatobia hominis, is the only species that routinely grows its young in human flesh. Mm. And if you're a big-time podcast listener like a lot of you are, uh, I'm sure you've heard accounts of these infections, uh, particularly on uh, WNYC's radio lab. In particular, evolutionary biologist Jerry Coyne observed the growth of a botfly larva in his own scalp, and uh, and he remarked on how it was not just growing inside of him but out of him. <laughs> the resulting creature was in a strange way part of him. It was like – like his offspring I
1: actually read about this in a fantastic book in one of my high school biology classes Ah. it was a book called Tropical Nature by Adrian Forsyth and Kin Miata and they had a chapter on this incident called Jerry's Maggot it's all about Jerry having the bot fly growing out of I think it was it was out of his head right? yeah yeah his scalp Um, I remember that that was an eye-opening read when I was like 14 or
0: whatever but that's the human botfly. Uh, we should get back to this uh, specific squirrel botfly that we're talking about here.
1: Right, cuterebra emasculator, the, the tree squirrel botfly. So it's a parasite of tree squirrels and chipmunks. It's found throughout eastern North America. There are multiple species of cuterebra botfly which infect different hosts. And emasculator, as you, you can kind of hear something going on in the name there, it was named by the entomologist Asa Fitch based on his mistaken belief that the larvae of the species ate the testicles of hosts squirrels and the hypothesis about this being the explanation for apparent squirrel castration is not as strong as it once was. Maybe isn't as strong now as when um, Seton proposed it since scientists actually no longer believe that the grubs of the botfly eat the squirrel's gonads. I I was reading more recent stuff about this botfly and it looks like there's not any particular – tendency or attention of this botfly to concentrate in the groin or the genitals or anything.
0: But then again, it need not actually eat the gonads to be interpreted as such by um, an, an, an average like hunter or even a, a medical doctor who just picks up a squirrel or sees one trotting around on the, uh, the fence, right? Right. So maybe to say, oh, that's a kind of a bloody scrotum. I wonder what's going on there. The explanation must be uh, this weird squirrel scrotum attacking explanation
1: right uh, so maybe they just see a, a botfly some kind of weird growth or protuberance that looks nasty somewhere on the underside of a squirrel right and they're like, oh what happened there but I, I don't know so it's possible this could explain some occasional observations of genital injuries in squirrels but I would say this doesn't really seem like a good general explanation for all of the observations.
0: Uh, now, Joe, I do have to return to uh, the, 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 the Tennessean aspects of the story for a second. Um, I worked for a small Tennessee newspaper back in 2004, and I definitely remember information pieces that we published covering this vital question. Is it safe to skin and eat a lumpy squirrel? That's some service journalism. It is. <laughs> I mean, you 've given the people what they need and what they need to know. Um, which I remember being horrified by this because I'd seen a warbled squirrel, uh-huh. and my first thought was, "Hmm, I wonder if I can eat that." Right, I would think I'm going to pass on the warbled squirrel and maybe go with one of these non-warbled um, uh, squirrel specimens. Squirrel fritters are on the menu tonight, and I'm in. I've got a hurtin' for some squirrel meat. <laughs> Will this do in a pinch? Yeah. Well, so I, I I looked into it a little bit to see if I could find some more recent examples of this same kind of. Uh, of journalism, And I did run across uh, one from 2007 in the Chattanoogan, okay Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, there's a quote in it uh, in the peaks from uh, wildlife biologist Alex Coley, uh, Department of Natural Resources Wildlife uh, Resources Division, and he says, quote, "The good news is that the lumps many hunters are observing are not tumors. In fact, they are caused by warbles, which are botfly larvae growing just under the squirrel's skin." Robert, why are you making me wait to find out if I can eat it or not? All right. Well, hold on, Joe. The, the, the Wildlife Resources Division, or WRD here, advises squirrel hunters across the state that consumption of affected squirrels is safe. Once the squirrel is skinned, the parasites come off with the hide. Because the larvae are strictly on the skin of the squirrel, the squirrel meat remains unaffected unless there is a secondary infection. But do you trust yourself to know if there's a secondary infection? (laughs) I guess not. But, you know, I think that another take-home here is that eating botflies isn't actually that crazy. There's actually evidence from Paleolithic art that indicates that early humans may have eaten reindeer botflies rather routinely. uh, And the practice uh, seems to have survived among Inuit people. Uh, I was reading a a book uh, uh, titled The Nature of Paleolithic Art by R. Dale Guthrie. And Guthrie writes, There are thousands of images that can give us a more rounded view of Paleolithic people and their times, images that are not customarily shown in coffee table volumes. Take, for example, these little worm like creatures from Paleolithic art. Eskimo from northern Alaska delight in eating the large spring maggots or larvae of the reindeer warble fly. I suspect Eurasian people did the same in the Paleolithic. This is one of the few insects eaten by the northern people. When the reindeer are killed, the hide is skinned back and the warbles are exposed on the underside. They are fat and salty, a spring treat. I have tried them several times during this time of year. Many people in the village have sore throats from the raspers of the maggot sides.
1: I'm struggling here because <laughs> I, I make a, a strong effort not to uh, stigmatize what other people eat, but the image of the raspers scraping the inside of the throat is disturbing me.
0: It, it is. It's a little. It's a little much to take. Uh, but I, I mean, I do not have any issue with with eating insects i think eating insects of course cool, not. has been a, a practice uh, uh, by human beings for a very long time and a very sustainable very one. sustainable it will i think invariably become a part of an increasingly a part of our diet as uh, as we continue to figure out how to survive in this world of uh, of exhaustible resources uh, so uh, it's a very good and clever thing yeah. to do. I think I have an irrational bias against it, yes, but it's the raspers yeah, and <laughs> the throat that uh, that is a little a little bit much to take so yeah we kind of this has been kind of a, a detour uh from the the basic squirrel castration um, uh, discussion, but uh, no, I think we needed a detour, even though this one was a little bit gruesome in its own. yeah, we needed to depart from the nastiness of squirrels and discuss something refreshing, like botfly fly consumption. <laughs> So let's
1: solve this mystery. What is it? Okay, so we think that the the bot fly on the squirrel's groin might explain some sightings, uh, but probably not all of them. Another thing that that occurred to me as a possibility is you've got this thing called squirrel parapox virus or squirrel pox, which can cause swelling or the appearance of tumors or lesions around parts of the squirrel's body, including the genital area. But this disease has only been observed to exist in the past few decades. It does not seem like a very good explanation either. But – Then there is one explanation that is head-slappingly simple. And while it doesn't necessarily explain all of the supposed observations people have claimed, if you assume they're telling the truth about what they saw, it does seem to explain a lot. It probably explains a lot. This is from Mammals of the Eastern United States by John O. Whitaker and William John Hamilton from Cornell University Press in 1998. This is their much more mundane explanation. Quote, Many people think that red squirrels, even though smaller, dominate gray squirrels and drive them out of their territories and even that they castrate them. The latter story probably arose from someone's observing how often red squirrels chase gray squirrels. This goes along with what Shed was saying about their territoriality. Uh, but picking up in the quote, then linking that observation with the apparent lack of testes in gray squirrels, which are abdominal in the non-breeding season. Ah. So testicular retraction, this is a very smart strategy for plenty of animals. In the
0: time when you don't need them on the outside, they come up on the inside. This would also make sense given the, the, the idea that we've seen presented here is that the, the testicles have not been freshly chewed off. No, they must have been chewed off earlier and the animal uh, has healed.
1: Yeah. And so this does not seem to explain the direct observation of wounds that a few of the authors here have claimed to witness, If again, if we assume those accounts are true. But this does seem like a really good explanation for why hunters who don't necessarily know better would find male squirrels without testicles. Uh, They only descend into a temporary scrotum during the breeding season anyway. So during the non-breeding season, the organs retract up into the abdomen. Hunter maybe shoots one, picks it up, doesn't see anything, and is like, whoa, something weird happened to this squirrel. Must be related to that gruesome rumor I heard years ago.
0: It's sort of like saying – what is chewing the landing gear off of these airplanes? <laughs> it must be gremlins because I don't see them at all. So I think I, – I don't know. I
1: think that's a pretty good explanation. I, yes. I am fairly convinced by that one that that probably explains most of what people have seen. So maybe some combination of seeing squirrels with just naturally occurring injuries, seeing squirrels with some kind of bot fly – growth in the groin area and then just lots of hunters finding squirrels in the non-breeding season without external testes. It it seems like you put all those together and you add in a little bit of whiskey in the woods and (laughs) this turns into hunters telling a story about gruesome castration rituals which do not exist.
0: And it's ultimately a story that that makes more sense in light of what we know about well squirrel behavior, but just also the the general behavior of territorial animals.
1: Now, as for those firsthand accounts in JAMA where they say, no, I saw this happening firsthand. I saw them do it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe some of these wounds could be explained by random fighting having a weird kind of outcome. But I don't know. As we said earlier, some of those doctors writing in just sounded a little bit off. Like, yeah. I don't know if you should believe their stories. Uh, I don't know if we really need to bother with E. H. Smith and his his ferret and red squirrel in the box experiment. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna hope that he made that up and it didn't really happen.
0: I'm just gonna assume that as well, Joe. That- <laughs> That it was just, just a, a, a fanciful story that he made up. But anyway, so
1: if you had your vision of squirrels marred by the discovery that they will sometimes eat carrion or sometimes hunt prey in the last episode, maybe you should rest a little bit easier now
0: if you'd previously heard the castration myth and thinking it's probably not true. All right. We're going to take one more break and when we come back, we have two more tidbits about the squirrel, neither of which is violent. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> All right, we're back. Now, I said neither of the examples we're going to look at here are violence. I guess one is by some definition self-violence, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. So uh, I do want to talk briefly about uh, hibernation and ground squirrel neuroplasticity. Ooh,
1: that sounds interesting. Now, in our recent episode, uh, in our 2001 a Space Odyssey episode— Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about this. Yeah, we were talking about space hibernation and how this isn't really a possibility for humans yet. We haven't discovered any kind of technology that will allow us to hibernate for long
0: space journeys. But you talked about the idea of hot sleep and how that relates to squirrel. Yeah, hot sleep, that being uh, a, a, a some terminology from uh, the—, the, the the science fiction of Orson Scott Card, the idea that uh, you have uh, individuals in the sci-fi world and they're, they're put into an artificial uh, slumber for long trips but it's not pleasant. Uh, it's, uh, it's like this sweating ordeal. And what we're going to discuss here actually reminds me a lot of, uh, of that. So Arctic ground squirrels have long been of interest to science for their hibernation abilities uh, and we've mentioned them on the show before. Back in 1996, zoo physiologist Brian Barn of the University of Alaska, he commented on how the hibernation of the Arctic ground skull is more like a months-long bout of insomnia. That sounds horrible. Yeah, it sounds like hot sleep to me. Uh, he pointed out that they lower their body temperature below freezing, but they, but they don't stay that way. They undergo cyclical rewarmings once or twice a month. And the rewarming must be important because it uses roughly 80 percent of the fat stores up in order to do it. So a lot of energy is expended to come out of of the freeze and then go back down into it again. Mm -hmm. So we're not just talking about rewarming at the end of hibernation. So Barnes' theory at the time was that they had to warm up to actually sleep, Hmm. that cold brains can't sleep that the torpor might stave off sleep for days or weeks, but they'd eventually be forced to warm up in order to get that vital slumber. Uh, he's worked uh, with the Institute of Arctic Biology ever since and has devoted a great deal of research to mammalian hibernation. Uh, if, if you look up like squirrel hibernation... Um, on the internet, and you look for, uh, for peer-reviewed papers, you will run across his work. Mm-hmm. He's taken uh, the, the creature's temperatures. He's measured their activity uh, along their neural pathways as well. And he's found that the, the creature's brain is quite resilient, as you might expect from such a, a cheater of death as the, uh, as the Arctic ground squirrel. During hibernation, the neurons shrink and connections shrivel. But the creature's brain makes up for this by undergoing growth spurts that multiply neural links back to previous levels and even beyond it. Oh, weird.
1: So this is a very strange alternate version of the neuroplasticity model
0: yeah, yeah they, this is this is kind of a wonder species for uh, people who, who are researching neuroplasticity in ways to potentially uh, boost it in uh, humans now we know
1: like in humans the neuroplasticity model you often you have is that children tend to make a whole lot of connections in the brain and then over time those connections are sort of pruned back limiting potential as as time goes on and maturity develops in the body and the the child eventually becomes more neurostable but here you're seeing a renewed of a type of infantile neuroplasticity in the adult ground squirrel as it hibernates.
0: Yeah, I mean basically it boosts neuroplasticity uh, in order to repair everything that it loses uh, during this hibernation process. So no matter what you think of other squirrels and your distrust of other squirrels, the Arctic ground squirrel is a a very attractive uh, species to scientists for a number of reasons. Cracking the inner workings of its hibernation uh, adaptations could allow us to engineer neuroplasticity treatments to improve organ transplantation and devise ways to place human space travelers into some form of of hot sleep for a prolonged space mission. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks, squirrels. All right. Well, I have one more bit uh, of, uh, of squirrel data to share with everyone. Is it going to be something shocking, I hope? Uh, it's, it's not. I mean, I don't think there's anything left that can truly shock us at this point in our squirrel exploration. This one's more humorous. Okay. So, Cape ground squirrels have a scrotum that takes up 20% of their body length. Okay. With a penis twice as long as that. Uh, in other, it's, so, it's another product of the, the evolutionary mating uh, arms race. The males uh, have been observed to engage in autofilatio and consume the ejected reproductive material, uh, material, which of course only makes sense. We've discussed animal cannibalism in the same light. It's energy. Uh, what 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 do you what do you what, what should you do with it? Why just waste it? You got to like put it back into the business, right? So. That makes sense, but but ultimately people ask, well, why do they do that? Uh, indeed, why does any species engage in uh, in masturbation? Well, there's the sexual outlet hypothesis uh, that arousal must be dismissed, uh, and that makes sense, right? You've just got this aroused squirrel; it's got to do something with all this uh, this you know this energy that it has now, and it might as well release it so it can get on with uh, nut collecting and what have you. But then there's uh, another idea that it might uh, be because they has to flush out the old sperm so that the, the, the creature has fresher sperm that it can utilize for mating. Is there an expiry date on that? Uh, essentially, it would be like an innate knowledge yeah. of the expiration date, I guess. But then uh, biologist Jane Waterman weighed in on the matter uh, – and uh, uh, at least as it concerns Cape Ground squirrels, and pointed out that dominant males actually do this the most, the ones who shouldn't have to masturbate if the sexual outlet view is correct. They also did it more after sex than before, seemingly a blow against the, the sperm quality hypothesis. Huh. She also dismissed the ideas that it's done as, as, a, as a signal to potential mates or to competitors because the pattern wasn't there. So you just don't see them doing it Uh, at the times where it would make sense if it was about communicating to other squirrels. Well, so what is Waterman's explanation? Her explanation or her her hypothesis here is that they they masturbate and in doing so reduce the odds of catching an STD. She points out that, that human males may urinate after sex to sort of clean things out and that Cape ground squirrels rarely urinate due to their desert environment. Oh, Okay. So what's what's a squirrel to do? If it doesn't urinate frequently, what can it possibly do to clean out that tract? Masturbation provides an answer. That
1: seems like a reasonable explanation, though I, I truly did not know we would end up in this place.
0: Yes, I think it's, it's kind of a, a happy ending for these two episodes. We should end <laughs> not with visions of meat-eating squirrels or scrotum-chewing squirrels, squirrels engaging in mortal combat with snakes, but instead simply... A masturbating squirrel in the desert. Trying to stay healthy. Yeah, just staying healthy. Sounds good to me. Now, we do hope these episodes have helped you look at squirrels in a different way
1: to see them not just as, uh, you know, tree rats running around in your yard, but something that is in its own right an evolutionary marvel, something that's engaged in a struggle for survival and and faces that struggle with a lot of alarming and surprising tools. But we certainly do not hope that you will go away from this with any kind of animus towards squirrels or any desire to harm them. We don't want to encourage that. Squirrels are part of the natural world, too, and they, they don't deserve any kind of vilification even though it might be kind of shocking to learn the truth about them since we see them so often but usually don't suspect these things.
0: Right. Yeah. Don't go hurt any squirrels uh, on our account. Uh, but of course, if you were already killing and eating squirrels, uh, let us know how that goes for you. Uh, if, <laughs> what's your experience with squirrel hunting and warbles and uh, in, in various bits of uh, you know, urban or rural legend about uh, squirrels biting each other? Did you
1: hear the squirrel castration urban legend? Where did
0: you hear it? And what variant uh, on it? What sort of explanation was uh, presented to you? We would love to hear about any of that. In the meantime, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast going all the way back to the beginning. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts where you can follow us and keep up with what we're doing, including Facebook where we have that fabulous Facebook group, the discussion module. That is a really great place if you want to uh, you know, get into conversations with other listeners about the topics we've covered, about topics we could cover, about unrelated things. Ask, uh, ask, ask, uh, ask us questions. Go check it out. Uh, It's the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. And, hey, while you're at our website, click on that store button at the top of the the website because that's where you'll find uh, all these cool T-shirts and stickers and coffee mugs, just about anything you, you could put our new logo on it is available to you.
1: Yeah, merch up. Get yourself a Sphere Catastrophique t-shirt. Yeah,
0: that one's really, really
1: rad. I recommend it. Big thank you, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to let us know if you've ever heard any squirrel castration urban legends or anything like that, to suggest a topic for a future episode, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at